Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you can see, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning for Advent called The Mothers of Jesus. Uh, we've been celebrating this first Sunday of Advent all morning. Uh, Advent, if you did not grow up uh, celebrating or, un or unaware of Advent, it's a season in life of the church where Christians are to embody and live into the truth that it, we are a people who live between two times, the first and second coming of Jesus, the already victorious kingdom of Jesus and the not yet fully revealed kingdom of God. In a way, we are Advent Christians all year long. We're located in this tension where we taste the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and we long for all that is dark and broken in this world to be done away with and made right. This is our reality. This is why at Christ Central Church, we love to have fun and enjoy one another in community. These are taste of the already. And at the same time, we long for social renewal, for justice and mercy to roll down, to be brought to bear in the places of injustice in people's lives and the systems of our society. And we long for spiritual renewal, for individuals to be transformed by the grace of Jesus. We long for the fullness of salvation to come to earth as it is in heaven. I'm excited about this Advent sermon series uh, that I pray that God will use to, to make us a people who wait and long and lament and hope and pray with expectancy as we li live between the two comings of our Savior. The series, The Mothers of Jesus, we're going to be looking at the women in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and say that you're going to wonder how in the world do these stories fit with Advent? Uh, especially this morning's story. But I pray you will see it has much to do with Advent. And so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, which is on the screen. Uh, and then Genesis 38, 11 through 19, and then 24 through 30. Here are the first three verses of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now Genesis chapter 38, we're going to look at verse 11 through 19 and 24 to 30. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. 
And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass, grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, you can have a seat. We're gonna pray that God will... Give us some understanding to this somewhat confusing uh, passage, but I think a beautiful passage in Genesis 38. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would break through right now by your spirit and by your word to our thoughts and to our hearts, to the way we live our lives. Would you transform us? Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. God, would you speak and would Jesus be exalted? It's in his name we pray, amen. I told you that we're gonna look at some stories here and wonder what in the world do these have to do with Advent? Uh, I hope you'll see that this story has a lot to do with it. Uh, growing up, uh, Thanksgiving night in the Mason family was always movie theater night. We would always go as a family to a movie on the night of Thanksgiving. Well, two weeks ago, Rachel and I got to abide by this custom as we went to South Carolina and left our kids with my parents and we went and saw the movie Creed 2. Now, spoiler alert, uh, sorry if you haven't seen Creed 2, but if you're a fan of Rocky, you know the plot, right? You know what's gonna happen. Every, every Rocky movie has the same storyline, but man, Michael B. Jordan, is, he's the man. And he plays Adonis Creed. I got like an eight, at the 9, 9.45, someone was like, amen to Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> uh, he's a stud. And he plays Adonis Creed, who's the son of Apollo. And in Creed 2, he's set to fight Victor Drago, who's the son of Ivan Drago, who killed Adonis' dad, Apollo, in Rocky Four. if you've seen it. Well, Victor's like his father. He's a machine. He's huge. He's mean. He's been training to fight his whole life. I won't spoil it all, but Adonis hits rock bottom. He's struggling with giving up boxing for good. He's mentally and physically broken. Through his fiance and the birth of a daughter and the council of Rocky, a breakthrough happens. And his mind and heart are radically changed. And he's now ready to train and fight Victor in Moscow, Russia. I didn't know the 40-year-old Daniel still had the 10-year-old Daniel inside because during this fight with Victor, I was so jacked and juiced. I told Rachel after the movie when the fight began to turn and you knew Adonis was going to win, I wanted to stand up and yell, get him, in front of the whole movie theater. Don't you love it when there is a major breakthrough in someone's life and then it leads to transformation? I read Tiger Woods' biography this summer. Tiger, after many surgeries, divorce, addiction, was at his lowest. And then he had a breakthrough and was transformed in many ways. This past year was so much fun to watch a new and different Tiger compete and play like the old Tiger. We all love a story of breakthrough and transformation. This is the story of the Bible, by the way. And the Bible's not a collection of people who are moral examples that we're to emulate. King David is an adulterer and a murderer. Peter the rock that Jesus says he will build his church upon denies Jesus and is a racist. 
Judah and Tamar that we're looking at this morning. It's just a story filled with sex and prostitution and deceit. Are we to be like these people? No. The Bible is the story of God's salvation breaking through to broken people and God's grace transforming lives. I wonder where you might sense the need for God to break through your life this morning. Perhaps it's to have hope in the midst of loneliness. Perhaps it's to save your marriage, to help you in your parenting because you can't get your children to do what you want them to do. Maybe it's through your anger or your impatience or your boredom or your addiction. I wonder where you might sense the need for God to break through. In Matthew chapter one, this is a very shocking genealogy. Unlike other ancient genealogies, there are five women listed, all mothers of Jesus. Now this might not strike us as unusual, but ancient patriarchal societies would have never listed the name of a woman, much less five of them. And the first mother of Jesus that we see listed is Tamar. We just read the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. So let's jump into this story of dysfunction and disguise, prostitution, paternity surprise. It ends with the birth of twins, Perez and Zira. Many commentators have noted that the name given to the firstborn is the key to understanding this story, Perez. It means breach, or you could translate it breakthrough. This is a story of God's salvation breaking through the darkness and breaking through the brokenness. I want to look at the two characters to help us understand what it means for God's salvation to break through. Let's look first at Tamar. And what we see here in Tamar is that when God's salvation breaks through, the cry rises, let justice roll down. Let justice roll down. Now, I've got to give you some context here because we're just jumping into Genesis 38. God tells Abraham in Genesis 12 that he's going to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons through two different wives, Rachel and Leah. Jacob loves Rachel, he hates Leah. So the sons of Leah hate the sons of Rachel because their father favored Rachel's sons, especially the one pretty golden boy, Joseph. The sons of Leah hate Joseph so much, they sell him into slavery. They take his coat, they cover it in blood, and they go back and they tell their father, Jacob, that Joseph was killed by an animal. And the leader of this plot, Judah. Judah then marries a Canaanite, a pagan worshiper, and has three sons, and they're not quite the best of the best. His first son is Er, who marries Tamar, and Er is corrupt and so wicked that God takes his life. Judah then gives his second son, Onan, to Tamar, and he is responsible to impregnate Tamar so she could have children, but Onan refuses. He'll have sex with her, but he will not allow her to conceive, and so God thinks this is wicked and takes his life. It was then Judah's responsibility to give his third son, Sheila, to Tamar so that she could marry and have children. It was his responsibility according to God's established Leverett Law. Here's what Leverett Law stated, that the father-in-law was responsible to take care of his daughter-in-law if a son were to die and is to give each successive son to his daughter-in-law in hopes that she could conceive and carry on the family line. But Judah... He has no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar. 
He's already blaming Tamar for the death of his first two sons. There's no way he's going to obey Leverett Law again. And so he tells Tamar, go to your mom and dad's. I'll reach out to you. Don't worry about reaching out to me. Sheila grows up. Tamar knows that Judah's not going to follow through and provide for her, so she takes action. In the Hebrew, these are aggressive and successive verbs, meaning that Tamar strongly and quickly takes action. She puts on the clothes. She puts on the veil. She sits down. She disguises herself as a cultic prostitute. And she knows that Judah's coming her way because it's sheep shearing time, which is like the equivalent of today's Mardi Gras or a crazy spring break week. She knows Judah's coming to participate. She knows his corruption. She knows his sexual promiscuity and that he will want to have sex with her, and he does. They have sex. And Judah promises future compensation, but she wants assurance. So he leaves his staff and his cord and his signet ring. Now, these three things would often be carried together. They were identity markers. Today, it would be like someone leaving their wallet. So what in the world is happening here? God is breaking through the darkness of Tamar's life and justice is rolling down where injustice has been enacted. Is Tamar's sexual entrapment right? No, but who is really in the wrong here? Judah, look at verse 26. Judah says, Tamar is more righteous than I. So Tamar can no longer sit by and bear this injustice. It was her right to be given the third son. So she exposes Judah's indifference, his refusal, his awful double standard that men can have sex with whomever, whenever, and that she had to remain celibate and childless. See, Tamar is crying out like the Old Testament prophet, let justice roll down. God's salvation is a breaking through of justice. God cares deeply about justice in our world. From this text, we might say he cares more about justice than he does sexual sin. One of my most formative professors in seminary was Richard Pratt. I loved Richard. He taught with force and uh, he always left us rattled after a class. In one class, he rattled us pretty hard. See, the majority of the people in my class had grown, grown up in or were serving in some type of evangelical church, mostly conservative. And someone posed the question about lust and sexual sin in the class. And Richard responded shockingly, God's scriptures say more about caring for the poor and the oppressed than it does about what you're thinking about late at night. You should be more concerned about why you aren't caring for the poor. And we all were like, now, of course, God cares about all sin. He cares about our sexual ethic and our sexual purity. But from Genesis 38, we see that he deeply cares about justice. And when God's salvation breaks through, justice rolls down. God cares for the widow and the orphan, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. Catch this, the injustice is being perpetrated by Judah because he had what would enable Tamar to function and thrive in society. He had a son who could be given in marriage and allow her to bear children. Without it, she's unmarriable, childless, pushed to the margins of her society, unable to function and thrive well. She's oppressed. What does pursuing justice mean for you? It means taking what you've been given and using it to help others gain what they need to function and thrive in society. 
Today, it's not marriage and children as much as it was in the ancient Near East. Today, it's more like things like education, jobs, housing, just to name a few. So it means taking the money, the position, the privilege, the education, which are all gifts from God, and we thank him for them. We don't feel guilty over them. We thank them, thank God for them, and then we use it to care for those that do not have it. When God's salvation breaks through, it looks like Christians caring deeply about justice in this world. Now, some of you right now are feeling giddy because you're social justice people. Progressive, you love talking about justice, and that's a good thing. We see here it is a major thing for God, but we must not be a people who have a truncated and reduced view of salvation. We have to see the whole picture. Judah, along with Tamar, lets us understand the fullness of salvation. So let's look at Judah lastly. See, when God's salvation breaks through, what we see in Judah is that spiritual awakening happens. And the cry that rises up is, I once was blind, but now I see. Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And his response is two words in the Hebrew. Take, burn. Take, burn. Burn her. Burning was was only done to the most heinous of crimes. But Judah is so full of contempt and anger that he says, burn her. Do you see self-righteous Judah? This is the man who sold his brother into slavery, deceived his father, married a pagan woman, raised sons who were wicked, and is unjust toward his daughter-in-law. And he is the one who proclaims, take and burn. He hates Tamar. He judges Tamar. He thinks he's so much better than her. Tamar is brilliant. She's being dragged away to be burned, and she gives the staff, cord, and signet ring and sends word to Judah, to the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And verse 25 says, please identify whose these are. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. The word identify is also translated recognize. See, Tamar sends Judah's possessions and says, do you recognize these? Do you see these? Tamar is saying much more than do you see these objects. She is saying, Judah, do you recognize yourself? Do you see your sin? Do you see yourself clearly? And Judah sees not just the cord and staff and the ring, but Judah recognizes himself. He sees himself as the one who is the greater sinner. She is more righteous than I. Judah, full of pride and contempt and self-righteousness, is confronted with his sin, and God's salvation breaks through. And he sees himself clearly, a sinner in need of God's grace. This is spiritual awakening. You call this conversion. The cry that rises, I was once blind, but now I see was blind to my sin, blind to my need of saving, blind to my need of grace, but now I see clearly. I recognize who I am. I recognize who God is and is willing to save me. Social justice is culturally in vogue in our city. For us as the church to stand for justice is to stand with our city in a lot of ways. This is a great thing. But I will say that today, at least here, there are other places, It doesn't always cost us as much. 
But to talk about the need for spiritual awakening, to be born again, eyes blind, but now seeing, is not as much in vogue culturally. We want to hear how lovely we are, not how needy we are. When God's salvation breaks through, grace invades and causes the sinner to see their sin and to boast in a gracious God. What does that mean for you and for me? It means you see yourself as the biggest sinner in the room, which does away with critique of others and judgment of others, pride and self-righteousness. Let me ask it another way. Who is your Tamar? Who do you despise? Who do you think you are better than? Conservatives? Liberals? Addicts? People who are overweight? People who talk too much? People who don't work very hard? People that have a lot of money? See, when God's not breaking through, we judge others. We get angry at other people's sins. And our cry is, burn her. Burn him. Here's the thing about seeing ourselves clearly. It's impossible to see ourselves clearly. It's impossible to make others see themselves clearly. We are blind to our sin. We don't see it. We don't know it's there. It's not that we necessarily like it and want to hold on to it. It's just, we just don't know it's there. We're blind. Rachel and I, or maybe I should say my, I am pretty big in our marriage on looking out from one another to see if we have something on our face. I'm, since we got married, I'm like, Rach, you got to look out for me. If I've got something on my nose or something on my teeth, you got to tell me, right? You got you to have my back. Well, last month I went to Duke Hospital for an appointment without Rachel. And I walked up to the counter and said, Daniel Mason here for my 3 p.m. appointment. And the nurse behind the desk was kind enough to say, sir. And I was like, What? said, sir, I wasn't ready for it. Sir, you got something on your nose. And I was like, huh? here's a Kleenex. And I was like, here? No, no, no. Got it. <laughs> and we laughed together and I told her, thank you. Thank you that you didn't let me walk around with something on my nose. You were kind enough to point it out so that I could see it, so that I could see what was there. We're blind to our sin. But God will use people to call us out, like he did with Tamar to Judah, like he did with Nathan to David and Samuel. God will use life situations, circumstances, relationships, his word, even public humiliation like Judah. He will use any means necessary to get you and get me to recognize ourselves clearly. And it is sheer grace when God breaks through May not always feel like it, but it is salvation breaking through. Do you know how real shepherds talk about saving a lost sheep? They have to clobber the sheep over its head, tie it up, pick it up, and carry it home. That sheep don't jump up and down when they're found. They struggle with it. They don't feel like being found. They don't feel like being helped. They don't feel like being saved. So it is often with us. We struggle with God breaking through. We resist. We may not feel like being saved, but God will do whatever it takes to clobber us over the head and over our heart to see our sin so that we can rejoice in his salvation. How do we know Judah had a spiritual awakening? 
he covered over the guilt of Tamar, publicly pronouncing, she is more righteous than I. Judah saves Tamar's life. Do you know how the apostle John describes Jesus in the book of Revelation? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the ultimate Judah. And instead of allowing injustice, Jesus goes to the cross. And through his kingdom, justice will roll down. And instead of cursing and sending away, Jesus takes the curse upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. You see, when God's salvation breaks through, we hear the cry from God, you are righteous. No longer condemned by our sin, but in and through the greater Judah, we are forgiven and made righteous. A once and for all final declaration that will last for all eternity. Because Jesus saves our lives. And when Jesus breaks through like this, we become secure. We become joyful in our salvation. We become better Advent Christians. Living between the first and second coming, we mourn for injustice. We long for people who do not know Jesus to know Jesus. We work for justice and we move out in hope, trusting that God is at work to make blind eyes see the beauty of the gospel. When we see injustice as church, we do something about it. And when we talk with people who may not know Christ, we don't shrink back, but we trust that God can and will use us despite our fears, despite our lack of knowledge. And we share this gospel in word and in deed, not as people who have it together but as blind sinners whose eyes have been opened by sheer grace, with deep humility and with great joy. How might God be trying to break through to you? Isn't it amazing when God breaks through and transforms people, when he breaks through and he transforms you and me? Let's pray. God, I, I ask that you would break through. Continue to do so as we come to this table. I pray that we would be a church, a community of people that, that would cry out, let justice roll down, and that you would use us to step into these places of injustice. I pray that we would be a church that would see people that were blind but now see, that we ourselves who even walk with you and know you would see the blind spots in our lives and be drawn to you and rejoice that you now continue to let us see the greatness of our salvation. God, thank you that you've been with us. Bless this table as we come to feast with you. In Jesus' name, amen.